This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Morena no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch-up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo irarangi unatangata o Manawatu. It is a Wednesday morning. If you've just woken up or you've slept in and don't know what time and what day it is, it's half past eight on a Wednesday. You're late. Uh, and the, in the catch-up, uh, we turn our attention to the media uh, on Wednesdays. The media not very popular in Wellington at the moment, but always popular here because um, we're media. <laughs> uh, we have Jimmy Ellingham from Radio New Zealand. Good morning. Thank you for making me so welcome, Fraser. You are always welcome, although you haven't been here for a while, working from home. Yeah, for the past four weeks, I think, since I actually sh- uh, we share an office, yes. Fraser, Fraser and I, but uh, not at the moment no. because of uh, COVID restrictions. Mind you, I get to stretch a bit more, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. um, you do have a bit more room. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, but you're working from home, but the emphasis is on working. You are still managing to get out and report on what's happening in Manawatu as Manawatu's regional reporter, uh, and something that's been taking uh, a bit of your time at the moment is investigating primarily a, a death at Palmerston North City Hospital, but sort of that opens up into other areas around mental health and the preparedness of the hospital and, and, and its capacity issues. Yeah, it's a series of deaths really, which we've spoken about many times on the show going back to 2014 from mental health patients, either at the mental health ward or in the case of Paul Rowe, the man I'm about to speak about who who wasn't in the mental health ward. He turned up at hospital in the emergency department with a self-inflicted wound in June last year. And to be clear, it was a hefty wound. A hefty wound, We'll not yes, go into yes. details, but yeah. it was incredibly serious. Yeah, and two days later he died after jumping or falling out a hospital window and lying for a couple of uh, lying injured for a couple of hours before he was found, his family is understandably not happy about many aspects of his of his stay at the hospital, including he was there for almost two days. He was into his yeah, second second lot of twenty four hours and wasn't seen by a mental health assessment team. He, he was due at some point to go to the mental health ward, but was on a general general ward recovering from his uh, wounds. Uh, when he when he jumped or mm. jumped or fell out of the window, we're not uh, too sure uh, at this point. But uh, as I, I think I said about two or three times ago when I was on this show, that the hospital has done an initial draft uh, serious adverse events report. They mm-hmm. call it um, where a, a few there, there was no sort of overall fault acknowledged, which seems no. Uh, we said curious. it was like the perfect storm. There was mm. a lot of little things that, w- w- on their own, would have been forgivable, but all added up to ultimately the death of a person. Yeah, yeah. And Poro's family uh, definitely holds the responsible uh, holds the hospital responsible for the death of the fifty eight year old, saying that the hospital was negligent in mm-hmm. its care. Their main concerns are about security and searching for. Uh, for someone, because in Paul Rowe's case, two and a half hours he was lying injured on a balcony. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say balcony, it's it's a big area of concrete. It's not a little tiny balcony no, no. Uh, which where you might not see someone. Two and a half hours before he was found, directly below the window from which he jumped or fell, might seem an obvious place to search, but, yeah. but it wasn't searched uh, for whatever reason. We're not we're not sure yet, and perhaps the coronial 
process if there's a coroner's hearing, which you'd certainly hope there would be yep. uh, for a death at the hospital, might get to the bottom of that. And of course, the fact he wasn't seen by a mental health assessment team for various reasons, but uh, he was there. You come in with a serious wound, his family says you should probably be seen uh, relatively uh, quickly, but uh, his sister. Well, the, I mean, the, the whole mental health thing. I mean, that, that's a story old as Palmerston North Hospital, pretty much. I mean, they're they're trying to uh, increase capacity there with a new ward, although that's a whole other story because it's not really going to meet the need even when it's built. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll get to that in the second phase. Mm. But um, Paul Rose, uh, family spokeswoman, his sister Lisa Stevenson has a few uh, has a few thoughts about what should be happening. I think procedures with security need to be strengthened and fail-safe to ensure that every possible area is searched and no assumptions are made, and that's very important, and that needs to be documented and rolled out as a matter of urgency. It's a good point about security, actually, because that is something that you could contract out very quickly and fix. Yeah, so she wants, to see, she wants to see changes made now, saying we can't have another episode uh, mm-hmm. like this. And last year, I've spoken about this before, uh, the death of another mental health ward patient who uh, who died in a suspected suicide on hospital grounds was found metres away from the front door a week later. Mm-hmm. And security saying, oh, we looked everywhere except there sort of, sort of thing. So yeah. there, there's obviously a few problems there um, that need to that need to be sorted and Paul Rose family and uh, sister Lisa Stevenson says they need to be sorted now. She mentions assumptions and that that was perhaps one of the concerning aspects of this case that it was assumed that Paul Rowe couldn't get out the window because, well, no one does yeah. <laughs> really. And also it was assumed he wouldn't be lying where he was because that area isn't able to be accessed out of hours, of course, except if you uh, jump yes. or fall out of a a window. So she has some valid points about uh, assumptions being made mm. there. The mental health consultation team that didn't see Paul Rowe, I asked the hospital a couple of weeks ago what changes have been made in the past six, month, six months since Paul Rowe's death. They said, well, we've strengthened this mental health consulting team. Le- Lisa Stevenson said, yep, yep, that's fine, but we, uh, we really need to see a bit of action now. It was just put off day after day and we'll see him tomorrow and that obviously never happened. It was too late to give him a proper assessment and his observational care was downgraded to 15-minute odds, which essentially is a a very big factor in what's happened. Mm. Mm. So she does not want to see a repeat of uh, that, as you can imagine. No. The the opposition National Party mental health spokesman, Matt Ducey, who's been quite active in this area and... Uh, there's a lot nationwide to, to talk about, isn't there? But he had some figures about occupancy rates of mental health wards. Um, nationally, in May 2020, occupancy was at about 80% for, nas- for mental health wards, which is the maximum safe limit that medical professionals say you should have because yep. you need to have a bit more of a buffer there. Yes. So 80% is probably essentially full yep. uh, because, I mean, and, because and, there will be surges and what. And, but I, I guess the thing is this is not limited to the mental health wards either. This is the emergency departments and even the general wards in some mm. cases. And across the country, hospitals have specialities, so there might yep. be cancer uh, wards or, or the like. Everything under business as usual is at capacity yes. right now. Yes, and emergency wards, I mean, Palmerston North Hospital's emergency department 
uh, even the Catherine Cook has sort of said, well, we need a new mm-hmm. Catherine Cook's the chief executive of Mid Central District Health Board, and she said we need a new emergency department. We so, do because I ch- nearly chopped my finger off with a table saw uh, last year. Went to the emergency department. Was it last year? Year before, possibly. And pre-COVID, I think it was actually. Um, went to the emergency department, and they said categorically, we're not turning you away. We would never turn you away, but you're in for hours and hours and hours of a wait. We suggest you go to um, the place on Victoria Street. So I went to the place on Victoria Street. Goodness, yes. Did you did you have to pay extra? Yeah. This place? Yeah. Um, and, and that's the problem, isn't it? You're, you're effectively you, – you're right. You're not being turned away. No. But you are telling people to go and pay a lot of money yes. um, as opposed to getting the, the free health care that we uh, we feel like we're entitled to mm. and get told that we're entitled to quite often. Um, I think at the emergency department here maybe a couple of years ago, the measure was to see – uh, 95% of patients within six hours, yes. which um, which sounds like a long time, doesn't it? So I'm not sure. Especially <laughs> when you're sitting on those uncomfortable chairs, unwell for a very serious reason. Yeah, I'm not sure what sort of a measure of success that is, but maybe no. a realistic one. But the, the mental health board occupancies, as I said, 80% May 2020, up to 90% in September last year. And Jeez, that's nationwide. Oh. Mid-Central, even worse, 88% in May 2020, 103%. So more than fully occupied in September 2021. In June, when... We nearly got a BSA complaint there because I nearly said something. Yes, yeah. In June, uh, when Paul Rowe uh, went to Palmerston North Hospital, the occupancy was 108%. Oh, for so once again, So once again, that's, that's too full, isn't it? The new ward will have 28 beds uh, with, with capacity, as it were, for an extra eight. And the hospital was at pains to point out that the, the mental health ward being full had nothing to do with the mental health consulting team not mm. being able to see okay. Paul Rowe because okay. that team operates not in the mental health ward. Right. Its you, yeah. idea is to go and look at people elsewhere in the hospital. So they, they did make that point. But the point about those figures is it shows just how under pressure the system is. Exactly. And and the risk of, of turning this in a different direction, although it's something we're going to talk about in a moment, um, this is why I keep banging the drum on this program and to anyone who will listen. The reason we need to be careful as a country and to be vaccinated and to steady the, the infection rate of COVID is because the health system under normal conditions isn't coping and and if you add a pandemic into the mix, it's not going to go well. What was it? 108% for like, more, capacity. capacity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so, insane. Yeah, I mean, and they'll obviously find ways to do that, be it extra beds or putting people in perhaps other wards but treating it as if it's the mental health ward, something like that. But that's still – it's still it's very full, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> well, it's overflowing. Yeah. Speaking of those numbers too, should we talk about COVID mm. numbers? And I saw the Manawatu Standard reported today that uh, Mid Central's modelling look says that we could get up to sort of seven hundred and fifty or seven hundred and eighty cases a day. That's you know, extreme end of things mm-hmm. uh, in in the Mid Central District Health Board uh, region. At the moment, we have twenty five active cases. Yes, uh, there were five new cases announced yesterday: three in Palmerston North, two in Levin. Importantly, though, nobody in hospital and nobody in intensive care. Uh, at the moment. No, they seem to be quite um, restricted to bubbles at the moment, those cases. Yes, yes, that's right, particularly that one in Hola Whenua. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also some cases in Martin, which comes under the uh, Whanganui District Health Board. Uh, I think overall there's 17 cases in Hola Whenua, Right. seven in Palmerston North, one in Ōtaki, none in Tararua or Manawatu. So that's, uh, that's good for those two uh, districts, but... Mm. Uh, Obviously, those numbers will go up. You you imagine there were, was it 750-odd cases announced nationwide yes, yesterday so, yeah. and close to 1,000 on, yes. on Monday, which has seen us go into 
to phase two. It, I, people, people have been saying, oh, it's not matching the modelling, so it's not a big deal. And my theory on that one is that the modelling has been based on experiences of other countries who haven't managed the pandemic as well as we have. But do, do not underestimate the fact that this is going to happen. The numbers will climb. It's just taking a bit longer because we've done so well in the beginning. That's my theory, anyway. And, and modelling does take into account, yeah, as you say, different conditions. Sometimes mm. the modelling will be of the extreme end of things. Other times it might be a bit conservative. I don't think it's ever going to be bang on. No. But it's a useful predictor, isn't yes. it? Yes. Um, last time you were here, we were talking about, I think, prison wardens or prison officers and the vaccination rates there. You got a little bit of a, a follow-up on that one. Yes, yeah, we were talking about how nationwide, I think it was only about, it was less than 2% of prison staff were uh, were unvaccinated mm-hmm. and had to lose their jobs. But that actually worked out to be quite a few dozen uh, workers, which will have an effect yes. uh, on the prison workforce. But you asked about what's the vaccination rate among prisoners. I did, and yes. yes. And the Department of Corrections actually helpfully publishes this information uh, online. As you can imagine, it's a bit of a moving feast because mm. people are coming and going <laughs> yes. uh, from prisons. But uh, the latest figures is at February 7th, so well, that's almost it's t- almost 10 days ago. Yeah. Mm. Uh, now, 79% of prisoners were fully vaccinated and – sorry, 70% were fully vaccinated and 79 uh, partially, oh, okay. uh, which is – so that's a little bit less than the wider – Population. It is, but I mean, th- th- this comes back to Maori and Pacifica communities being adversely represented in statistics. I mean, the prison population uh, has a large proportion of Maori and Pacifica in there, and their vaccination rates are quite low. And actually, I was looking at the the COVID stats yesterday. I think, and Maori and Pacifica are the vast majority of people affected by COVID nineteen as well, and probably because of the the vaccination records. Yeah, like there will be a link there too. And we are seeing there has been some COVID outbreaks in prisons. Uh, there's one in Witty Prison, which is near uh, Auckland. And I think we've also seen some prison staff affected too. Mm. And that's where the loss of those few dozen staff uh, might have an, yes. have an effect. You can call as, them in. Yeah, as, and as the Corrections Union says, you can perhaps get new staff, but that's hard at the moment to get new staff. as any business. Yes, <laughs> and then you've got to train them up. No, and you've got to train them. That's, that's a right. highly specialised job. Yeah. Uh, we are here with Jimmy Ellingham from RNZ, Manawatu Regional Reporter for our public broadcaster. Uh, you're on the catch-up on Manawatu People's Radio. If you'd like to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Also, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your online listening. You're still on uh, Spotify. Yes, yes, we are. Um, we have no control over that. That is a, 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 a decision for the, the nationwide group. But, I mean, honestly, it's, it, people go where people go and we need to be there. Um, don't judge me. <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> um Huia Street. Let's talk about Huia Street. Um, Palmerston North had the rare opportunity to be the focus of submissions to Parliament uh, in order to recategorise or, or um, yeah, recategorise the the land at Huia Street so that we might build houses on it. Yeah, this is another one we've been talking about for a couple of years, mm. and I suspect we'll be talking about for a couple of years uh, more, if not longer. Mm. Uh, Huia Street Reserve. Who knew it was called that? It's the old bowling club <laughs> land on the corner of Park Road and Fitzherbert Ave. Needs an act of Parliament to mm. change its designation from. Reserve land, and as it is now, to, to, to something else. In, in order that we can build houses on it. But I've noticed recently it's been tidied up. It has, hasn't it? Because mm. it was very overgrown, looking pretty bad. But now it's a bit tidy and they've cut down some trees. They're getting ready just, to develop it. Yes, it might be jumping the gun a bit, mightn't it? But uh, there's, a, there's a bill going through Parliament called the Palmerston North Reserves, uh, Reserves Empowerment Amendment Bill. 
Uh, that's a, that's mm. a mouthful anyway. That's before the Environment Select Committee. That bill had its first reading uh, before Christmas, and now public submissions are open until Friday. Mm-hmm. Fraser, so you've got two more days right. <laughs> if you wish to make a submission. Um, and this is what to do if there's 1.5 hectare, hectare lot, or it's roughly 1.5 hectares. Of course, it's slightly separate to there's 7.5 hectares down uh, Summer Hay Street, another mm. former bowling club land, but that doesn't require no. an act of Because Huria Street was gifted to the city yes. as a reserve. As That's reserve. kind of the problem, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, whereas the Summer Hay Street, they, they might need a hearing to change because half of it's designated for housing, half of it's reserved. So they might need to be some sort of uh, zonal change hearing. Yeah. But the Parliament Act is only for Huria Street Reserve. So the City Council has made a submission to the Select Committee. And... Uh, Taking us back in history, that going back to about 2007 or 8 or something along those lines, that they tried back then to change this uh, act in Parliament to, to build housing on mm-hmm. it. But the City Council seemed divided. So I think officials were saying, yes, we should do this. But councillors, some of them were, came to Parliament, to the Select Committee, and said, we're opposed to this. And so the Select Committee sort of said, well... Are we divided or not on this? And in the end, the bill was withdrawn, so mm. it went nowhere. So this is our attempt almost 15 years later. But there still is some division. Uh, public submissions that the council called for last year mm-hmm. had a pretty well almost even split. And in fact, I think slightly more people were in favour of leaving it oh, okay. as reserve land. But the city council says, well, we're in a housing crisis and building houses here will go s- uh, some small way towards uh, resolving this. And they talk about, in the City Council submission to Parliament, talks about medium density housing. Mm-hmm. But there was some debate at a City Council meeting last week, which uh, which I watched on the live stream, <laughs> and uh, which is good. To, it's good you can do that, mm, uh, yes. particularly in COVID times. But uh, I was um, I was telling you before we started the show that at times it was a bit difficult to see who was speaking. It might be nice to be told, mm-hmm. although that could potentially get production costs up, couldn't yes. it? Literally is a camera, I think, at the moment. And uh, the sound is good. You can hear everything, but uh, if, if you're not familiar with the back of some people's heads, it can be, <laughs> it can be hard, hard at times to see who is, who is talking. Uh, but anyway, Brent Barrett, uh, he, he proposed an amendment to the submission saying that, yes, you know, we want this land to be developed and we want to change the status, but that it should be held in public mm. ownership. And there's quite a bit of debate about this. And he said that... So is he angling for another Papaioia place? Well, he didn't. There were no details, but mm. potentially public ownership. Yeah, yeah. And the council hasn't made a decision yet. It just says housing. It doesn't know if it's going to add to its own portfolio or private have a private development. But mm. uh, Brent Barrett said it should be retained in public ownership and that would get us, that would be, in his words, the, the best chance of getting a, uh, actually getting a housing outcome, as he calls it, called it, so meaning houses there. But that was voted down. So the council will simply submit that we change the designation to allow for development. And, uh, I mean, $750,000 was the medium house price in Palmerston North at the end of December. We've talked about these issues uh, at length. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, we'll see. The submissions close on Friday and then the bill that will be considered by the select committee. There might be changes made before a second reading in Parliament. Who knows? Mm, I can't imagine. So, I mean, just uh, yes, they need to read it. The interesting thing for me is if it's reserve land, why was there a bowling green on it? That's, well, not... that's reserve. That's still sporting and recreation purposes. I see. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Fair a reserve, I don't think it has to be a park. It just has to be some sort of recreation. Right. Yeah. And in the council, when I spoke to David Murphy, one of the planning officers before Christmas, he said, well, the way people. Uh, have recreation, take recreation these days has changed. It might have been bowling, mm-hmm. you know, sports once upon a time, but now it's more stuff like walking and biking. And that's yep. why the council thinks it's more important. And they've done a great job of developing those 
paths and yes. walks. And well, this is the thing. I mean, who, who is, the, the reserve there is right next to the big playing fields, the Manawatu River walkway, the Esplanade. Yeah, yeah but as um, some that I've spoken to have pointed out, they are near Ongni Park, say, in Manawaroa mm. Park, but those are primarily sporting mm. uh, sporting reserves, whereas a park could be different. It could be somewhere where you go and relax. Where you're not going to go and sit in the middle of a cricket game and uh, sit on the outfield and read your book and no, have a picnic. No, but there's plenty of places in the Esplanade to do that, by the cafe and the, the paddling pool, and you, there, you, heaps of places to do but that. the people I spoke to said it's not <laughs> that close. Okay, so, fair enough. Um, yeah, the, their point of view was that that park was far enough away from those places. Yeah, fair enough. Um, let's move on. Uh, Lake Alice. Uh, this is something else that has been uh, taking a lot of your time um, the inquiry into what happened at Lake Alice as part of the wider um, Royal, abuse, Commission, yeah. Royal Commission Abuse of Children in State Care, I think is the term, isn't it? That's right, yes. So Selwyn Leakes, who was the lead psychiatrist at the Child and Adolescent Unit, where many of this, much of this abuse, uh, well, all the abuse was said to take yep. place in the 1970s, he died in January. Uh, so I, I decided to take a, little, a look back at all the opportunities, particularly back in the 1970s, um, to, to charge or prosecute yeah. Selwyn Leakes and ask why they were, were missed. And a man called Oliver Sutherland, who was the, a founding member for the Auckland Committee on Racism, they were really the first group to publicise what was happening at Lake Alice. Uh, the story of a 14-year-old boy called Haki Harlow was made public by them in late 1976. And here's a bit of what Dr Sutherland told me this week. Well, apart from, apart from um, bitterly criticising us for making these matters public, and saying there's no was no basis in it, uh, he backed down and and on the 21st of December 76 he announced there would be a commission of inquiry led by a, uh, a uh, an Auckland magistrate, Bill Mitchell. And what happened with that commission of inquiry? Well, the outcome, as from our point of view, was really a whitewash. He exonerated the, all the authorities who had dealt with Haki, whether they were Department of Social Welfare, whether they were Department of Health, whether it was Lake Alice. Uh, basically, he excused all of their, um, the ways in which they'd handled the boy. Uh, the one thing that came out of it, which was really critical, though, was that he said that there was never any express treatment, uh, sorry, express um, consent given for the shock treatment that, that Haki had had, which was sometimes was shock treatment given with anaesthetic and sometimes without, and sometimes, as, as Haki described it to us, as punishment. And uh, so we had always felt that that should never happen to any child, and certainly not without parental consent. But uh, it, it didn't happen. There was no consent for Hake, and, and, and Mitchell did, did admit that. And did this also have the effect that for the first time people knew that this was the, the public, I say? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, right from the, the couple of days after we first put in our complaint to the Minister of Social Welfare in, in mid-'76, there was a medical reporter for the New Zealand Herald called Peter Trickett who took a particular interest in this whole matter and he published a number of uh, big uh, multi-column articles about Lake Alice, about the treatment. He went and visited Lake Alice. He interviewed Dr. Leakes. He interviewed Dr. Pagma, who was in charge of the main Lake Alice um, hospital. And Peter Trickett actually sort of brought the case. And, of course, he interviewed Hake. Um, and Hucker's um, grandmother using an interpreter that, I, that I, a friend of ours 
and and so Peter Trickett, I think, played a major part in alerting alerting the wider public to to the horrors that were going on at Lake Alice. So everyone knew and nobody did anything. Yeah, that's right. The first police investigation wrapped up in 1978. And Dr. Sutherland says, well, the, the patients at this child and adolescent unit were simply not believed. And the, the behaviour of leaks and staff was, uh, was excused. The he that Dr. Sutherland was referring to in the first part of that segment too was the social welfare minister of the time. So he wasn't happy that these matters had been made public, but reluctantly ordered an inquiry, which, as we heard, didn't really uh, get anywhere. Finally, last year, police said there was enough evidence to charge Dr. Leakes, but at that stage he was 92, riddled with cancer, had dementia, among other ailments, so he wasn't fit to stand trial. And we have a former nurse, an 89-year-old called John Corcoran, as the only man facing charges now for what happened at Lake Ellis. Mm-hmm. Have the police apologised? They have apologised. They, they have apologised for shortcomings of their second investigation, which came in the early 2000s. Uh, which dragged on for years, but only, I think, only interviewed one person. There were missing statements from it and all sorts. Everyone just wanted to brush it under the carpet, didn't they? They didn't want to get into this. Yes, the government apologised in 2001 and gave a small settlement to uh, former patients of something like $14 million spread across 200 people from which legal fees were deducted for many of them. Uh, I did a story last year actually saying, saying that Treasury had put aside 10 times that amount so and they only got uh, 14 million when they originally thought maybe 140 million. Mm. Um, let's move on to slightly better news: the Women's Cricket World Cup. It's about to start now, Fraser. I'm, I'm going to struggle to get a word in here with your love of cricket, <laughs> aren't I? But ahead of the Women's World Cup that's starting in New Zealand on uh, March the fourth, I look back at the first World Cup in 1973 in England. Uh, New Zealand finished third, but perhaps could have had a chance of winning. But the rain, sort of, <laughs> you'll be surprised to know from England, sort of um, didn't didn't go New Zealand's way. And in the end, England won that World Cup. Now I spoke to four former players from that team, who are all in their late seventies or early eighties now. Judy McCarthy, who was Judy Dool at the time, the captain Bev Brentnell, uh, Maureen Peters, who was Maureen Dunlop and Linda Pritchard, who was then Linda Powell. And uh, it sounds like they had a, a really good time for a month <laughs> over in England, uh, you know, going around playing cricket. And these people at the time, they're not full-time cricketers. No, they, no. they had jobs or families uh, to raise. The women athletes. Yes. They were <laughs> and on that... That's a hobby. <laughs> on that, there was um, there's a famous cricket ground in London called Lords that you may have heard yep. of. Yes. And the president of the Marlebone Cricket Club, which runs that, a guy called uh, Aidan Crawley, said something along the lines of, if women prove themselves, um, we're not going to give them a game this time, but we might if there's ever another <laughs> World Cup. Um, but that wasn't perhaps quite as bad as what uh, former Australian cricketer Keith Miller wrote. He was covering the tournament as a journalist and... Uh, Here's what he had to he wrote about one of the games. Gone were the days of flat chests and hairy legs. These girls had curvaceous figures and beauty. My vote for the cutest-looking cricketer goes to opening bat Donna Carmino, a 16-year-old schoolgirl from Trinidad. Oh, bugger off. Mm. That's disgusting. Yes, now that, that's not his voice, but those no. are his, uh, his words. That's, oh, God, I can't... Oh. But while you were recovering from that, the, the tour, uh, as I said, was a bit of an adventure for most of the players concerned, although a couple of them, that's one-day cricket, so 60 overs, uh, which is now 50, played in whites back then, now played in colour, and back then the women wore culottes, not trousers, so it was a little bit different. But it, <laughs> but for one of the players too, uh, Linda Powell, as she was then, uh, she the, the tour uh, changed her life a little bit. I think that the romance really happened after the tour and I was more interested in, in playing the cricket during it there. But I got to know my husband, Roy. He was our coach driver. 
<laughs> Great. I say a little bit. That's actually quite uh, <laughs> life-changing, life isn't it? So a couple of years later, Linda Powell, who was a New Zealand um, batter, as we call it now, became Linda Pritchard. And uh, yeah, these cricketers, Wife of a bus driver. Of a not, bus. not a cricket, dri- cricket player anymore. And how it came about was quite funny too. The team's original bus driver uh, kept getting lost lost in London and one day I think the team said something like you know this is the third time or whatever we've passed this uh, Big Ben or whatever it might have been (laughs) so uh, they may never have met if not for the first bus driver not knowing his way uh, around London but yes as I said this year's World Cup starts in just over two weeks I think it is it'll be unfortunately played in front of no crowds it looks like Mm. with the uh, Omicron outbreak and there's been uh, the teams there's eight teams this year seven obviously from overseas six of them have had to go into managed isolation but I read this morning that they've with the new changes to our phase two yes they only have to do seven days not ten yes. so that's something uh, at least for them there we go that is the catch up for your Wednesday morning Jimmy Ellingham from Radio New Zealand thank you for joining us thank you Fraser and remember if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch up series just head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch up back tomorrow with Grant Smith Mayor of Palmerston North City do join us then bye for now support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.